The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. Amen. Thank you, Jackie and praise team. Man, I think Felix claps better than I do on rhythm there. That was, that was impressive. We're looking at Luke 5, 1 to 11. It's in the bulletin and it's also, you can find it in the Pew Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, please take one of those with you as our gift to you. Well, children, I don't know if many of you have seen Apollo 13, but there's a famous line. And sometimes whenever I have a problem, I'll call my dad and I'll say, Houston, we got a problem. And we have at least three problems in this text in Luke 5. I want you to see if you can figure out what the problems are. And then we'll look at the resolve or the solution to the problem. See if you can figure them out as I read this passage. Familiar text. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, on Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now Luke refers to it as a lake. All the other Gospels refer to it as the Sea of Galilee, but Luke believes it's a lake. So it's the lake of Gennesaret, Sea of Galilee, same body of water. He saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out on them, had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. He sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep, Let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Let's pray together. Lord, you have said that the fear of the Lord is our treasure. And so we ask that you would give us an undivided heart that we might fear your name. We ask in your name. Amen. Well, did you pick out any problems? We got three problems. The first problem is verses one to five. And there's there's one little problem is that The crowds are pressing in so tightly against Jesus that he can't communicate the word. And so in order to have an adequate pulpit, he asks Peter to push out a little bit. And he gets into the boat, this fishing boat, and he goes out and he uses the, the, the boat as a pulpit. So he has some room to teach. And as we know, the disciples... Peter here and a couple of the sons of Zebedee, they've been fishing all night 
and caught nothing. Sound familiar? It's been a hard day's night. Well, again, this is what we have here. And all Peter wanted was a hot shower, a warm breakfast, and a soft bed. And add to that, we have this problem that Jesus has the audacity to ask Peter to put down your nets for a catch. That's a problem because there's a lot of work that goes into mending nets. And you've been working all night. It's kind of like you just clean your boat. You just clean your boat from all the salt water. What's the last thing you want to do after that? Is get in the salt water again anytime soon. Well, here Jesus asked him when he was done, when he's preaching, he just says, when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. (sighs) Well, you can imagine what Peter is thinking. You can use this fishing boat as a pulpit. You can use it for teaching. You can use it for Sunday school. But for crying out loud, Jesus, don't tell me how to, how to fish. You're good at Sunday school. You're good, Jesus, at preaching and teaching. You're good at driving out demons. You're good at a lot of things. But I know how to do my job. Thank you very much. Stick to your carpenter skills. We have a place for you, Jesus, and it's not in the workplace. We have a place for you, Jesus. It's three hours on a Sunday morning. I don't tell my accountant how to do his job. I don't tell him how to do the new tax code. When I go to the dentist, I don't tell him how to fill a filling. When I go to a plumber, if the plumber comes over, I don't give him a lesson on plumbing. Believe me, I don't give him a lesson on plumbing. There's a lot of things I don't do real well. I mean, when Kim got an embroidery machine, I told the ladies in the office that this thing's amazing. It does mammograms. (laughs) And they were shocked, and they corrected me, monograms. Big difference. You see, what Peter is saying to Jesus is stay in your lane, bro. If you've seen the Geico commercial, stay in your lane, bro. That's what he's telling Jesus. Preaching from my boat, that's cool. You're in your lane. Asking me to let down my nets for a catch is outside your lane, Jesus. But I'll do it. As Michael Card says in his book about Peter, if you want to impress a fisherman, a tremendous catch is the way to do it. So Jesus is catching more than fish in this story. I hope you see that. Jesus is catching disciples, past and present. Has he caught you? Because we have the same problem Peter has. Peter thinks Jesus is overstepping his bounds. You're good, Jesus, for Sunday school, for worship, maybe even at lunch after worship, and maybe two hours a week for a small group. But Jesus comes along and says, I'm Lord over your cell phone. I'm Lord over your texting. I'm Lord over your Snapchat. I'm Lord over your Instagram. I'm Lord over your Facebook. I'm Lord over Google Chrome, Internet Explorer, Firefox, all your web browsers. I'm Lord over Netflix. I'm Lord over your entertainment. I'm Lord over your movies. Lord over your TV. Lord over your cable. Lord over your books. Lord over all you read. Everything in your thought life. Is he Lord over that? Or do you say, stay in your lane, bro. Stay in your lane. I got this. You're not welcome over here, Jesus. Let me just keep him in my place. Because we're arrogant and we're foolish. And we want to keep Jesus relegated to where we like him, where we're in our comfort zone. And Jesus comes along and he just always intrudes lovingly 
and violently sometimes. Abraham Kuyper, great Dutch theologian, has this famous quote, and you'll hear this a lot, children, if you keep going to church, which I hope you will. Here's the quote. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He owns every square inch. So how in the world do you tell Jesus to stay in your lane, bro? When he made the highway, he made the universe, he upholds the world by his power, he owns everything, cattle on a thousand hills. So for us to tell him to stay in your lane like Jesus did, like, Master, come on, we've toiled all night and we've caught nothing. Don't you know about fishing? My father and my grandfather, I mean, I would imagine that Peter was probably telling Jesus as they were doing this, you know, let me tell you a little bit about fishing, Jesus. I've been doing this for a long time now, 30 years or so, you know, since I can remember, and my father was fishing, and my grandfather was fishing. We've just done a lot of fishing, and this is kind of how it works, Jesus, you know, so at night we go out, there's not the, you know, when they can't see us, and here's the places we fish, and but during the day, when the, when, once the sun comes up, Jesus, you need to know that the fish, they, they go away and they don't, they're not over in this area and there's no fish around here, you know, and he's telling them all this. And, but, you know, I'll just, let me just teach Jesus a little bit about how to, how to fish. And Jesus, Jesus said, let down your nets for a catch. Jesus didn't say, let down your nets and let's see what happens. Let's roll the dice. Let's, let's see, let's, maybe we might catch something. Jesus says, let down your nets for a catch it's happening but Peter doesn't get that and he's probably explaining to him you know what's going to happen and we get a problem here don't we you see Jesus shows us something amazing about this text is that Jesus is so much more than a prophet and so much more than a priest he's Lord Every time the Bible, particularly in, in, Luke, in Luke's gospel, if you ever see the word master, always look for what's coming after it because <clears throat> it's always something wrong, okay? It means they're close but no cigar and there has to be a correction that master is like, okay, they're gonna cry out something but they need to see that he's Lord. He's, he, the master's like a step along the way but you're not there yet. When Ben and I went to the Gospel Coalition Conference recently and John Piper who's big time pastor, he's retired now, but he introduced D.A. Carson, who's written lots of commentaries and got this British accent. And D.A. Carson got up to say, and he said, and D.A. Carson was preaching on, on Jesus from John 4, and he just said, imagine if I were to say to you that John Piper is the greatest person who's ever existed because he introduced you to me. You should laugh, because everybody there, all 10,000 people, laughed. It, 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 that's crazy. Who would ever say, you say, humans don't say something like that. But Jesus said, what did you go out to see? A prophet? I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it's written, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus said that. And you think, oh, John the Baptist. No, no, you're missing if you think John the Baptist. 
John, Jesus is saying, John the Baptist has just, he's the greatest person who's ever existed because he introduced you to me. Who is this guy? He's no mere guy. He's more than that. And that leads to this second problem. The second problem is what happens as soon as the nets go down. Let down your nets for a catch. And what happens? We get another problem. You see, what happens here is they enclosed a large number of fish and the nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat, distress signal, to Houston, we got a problem, to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they, both the boats, began to sink. That's the second problem. The boats are sinking and the nets are breaking because there are so many fish. When we did this years ago, we did a vacation Bible school in Peru. And we had this great, all these kids came and somehow, I don't remember how we did it, but we had nets. And we had made, I don't know how we did it, but we just had gobs and gobs and gobs of fish in the nets. And I just remember, and, and, and we just like unleashed the nets and the fish went everywhere. And they were, you know, just paper fish. But the kids in Peru, they got it. Like their eyes just were like, un- like where did all these fish come from? It's just fish, 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 everywhere. I don't know how many hours we must have spent making this thing, but it had, we didn't do it this week. I'm just telling you a story. It had dramatic effect upon the kids that they saw just hundreds of fish. Well, this is the real deal here. This is not vacation Bible school. This is it. And we are shown who Jesus is. Think about Jesus when in the Old Testament when Pharaoh asks Moses, who's the Lord that I should obey him? And let Israel go. Who's the Lord that I should obey him? Well, Yahweh was going to answer that question. And ultimately, I think it's Jesus. And God showed that he is completely sovereign over nature and over all the Egyptian gods. And God sovereignly worked plagues of frogs, flies, gnats, boils, hail, livestock, locusts, and and even the death of the firstborn son. And in all these plagues, we are shown that God has sovereign control over the location and the destiny of animals. He's sovereign over flies and gnats and boils. And here he's sovereign over the deep. And he's sovereign over fish. And he shows Peter that he's Yahweh in the flesh. And he exercises sovereign lordship over all his creation. And not every square inch of it is mine. It's Jesus's. Hebrews 1 tells us that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Just think about that for a minute. Colossians 1 says, By him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And we want to say to him, Stay in your lane, bro. That leads to the third problem. 
The third problem is verse 8. That's the real problem. Jesus is Lord over the fish. He's Lord over the deep. He's Lord of all. Wait a minute. Yahweh's in my boat. Yahweh's in the boat. Now we got a real problem. All the other problems are minor problems. This is a real problem. And Peter gets low. And he gets down on his knees in front of Jesus and says, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. You see, Peter's understanding of Jesus is growing. And you wonder, how does, the title of this sermon series is, How Does Jesus Make a Disciple? How does Jesus make a disciple? How does he? You know what he does? He reveals who he is. He reveals his glory. And the way that we grow as disciples is we study him and we look at him and we contemplate him. And as we do, we are changed from glory to glory as we behold his transcendent glory. And we're seeing that Jesus does miracles, that Jesus is Lord over everything that I can't put Jesus in any box. He's not some rabbit's fur that I can just rub on and, and think that this little genie will help me when I need him. And I pray a little prayer and I, I ask him into my heart, but, but I really want him over in a little corner of my heart. And I really want to do all that my heart really wants to do, but I'll ask him into my heart so he can join the hundred other idols going on. And Jesus comes in and just takes over. He invades and what Peter's having here is this epiphany or experience of what Tim Keller calls a self-quake. You guys know what an earthquake is, right? Anybody ever experienced an earthquake? I was over at Gaithersburg Airport with Brian Hudson, and all of a sudden the whole deck started to shimmy. And Brian just looked at me and immediately said, it's an earthquake. He knew right away. And I just thought, well, this is crazy because everything's starting to just like come apart, like things aren't making sense. Well, this is a self-quake. A self-quake, Tim Keller says, is when the salvation of Christ really begins to work in your life and you get a worse view of yourself. You come to the realization and admission of just how flawed and how bad you are. That's always the first step. He says, I'll tell you something. If you think you're getting close to God and no sludge is being stirred up from the bottom of your heart and you don't feel like this, then you're not getting close to the real God. It's still a God of your imagination. It's not the real God. But you get in the presence of the real God and you're gonna instantly know that you're sinful and not worthy to be in his presence. And that's what Pete, that's exactly what happened to Peter. He, he, he wasn't, overwhelmed anymore by the problem of what are we gonna do with all these fish and that boats are sinking. The bigger problem is that God himself is in the boat with me. I'm this close to God, I need space. At some point, we get humbled in life. And a lot of times we, we always compare ourselves. I'm going somewhere with this, but so like every sport that I've ever played, at some point there's just been this tremendous humility thing that happens where you realize there are people that are in a whole nother league, a whole nother division. And you think, I thought I was a good baseball player. And the first time I was in an all-star game, we went to Mount Airy and we were playing all-stars from another team. 
And this guy who ended up playing college football at the University of Virginia, he was big. And a mound is only 46 feet when you're playing 60-foot bases. The first pitch, I don't think I saw it. I'd never heard anything hit the glove that loud. Strike one. Second pitch, I swung just because I thought I should. And, <laughs> but it was already in the mitt, strike two. And strike three, I was too terrified to even swing at that thing. I've never seen a pitch, and ever since, and I played in college here, I never saw anybody throw that hard, that close. Three pitches, have a seat. Wow, I guess I'm not gonna be playing baseball at that level. Humbled. First time I played basketball, and I was in a, a league that we were in a rec league, and they had the All-Stars, and the All-Stars went to Columbia to play the Columbia All-Stars, and they were more the city kids, and we were the country bumpkins, and, but I thought I was good, and I could play with these people. So the first time, I thought, they've never seen a lefty go to the hole like I'm gonna go to the hole, and I went to the hole hard. And I heard, get that out of here and it was a volleyball spike. It bounced off the wall, came back in one bounce right to me. I caught it and I handed it to the ref. <laughs> I guess I'm not gonna do that again. Humbled, not gonna drive to the hole anymore. Every sport I've experienced it. I thought I was a good racquetball player in college. I thought, well, I'm pretty good at this. I, I mean, the people I was playing, I could play with. And then one day somebody just came in and said, "Hey." Do you mind if I join you guys? We'll play threesome. Sure, I can handle this. Oh my goodness, I didn't know the ball made that kind of sound. If you play a real racquetball player, you almost need earplugs. It's deafening. And this guy never hit the ball until it was lower than a foot off the ground. And then it was just a rocket and it would roll back to you. You'd pick the ball up and hand it to him. <laughs> I mean, it was unbelievable. And I thought, well, that's the end of that sport and I thought I was pretty good at tennis and this lady this girl at the pool she she wanted me to play her boyfriend in tennis and I thought well I'm pretty good I'll play you sure let's play 6-0 first set it was so bad and then we were crossing sets and he said hey do you want me to slow it down a little bit no 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 we're good we're good I got a game the second game. <laughs> it was terrible. And when you, all of these kind of, you realize there are people that are at a whole different level. Well, we need that with God. And Peter got it with fishing that he realized this, there's nothing, he's never, there's nothing in his experience that has anything remotely close to what he's just experienced. And now he's, he realizes, I'm in the presence of God. Well, this is what happens with us, is that we compare ourselves to one another. And we think we're pretty good on the righteousness scale. We think, I'm pretty good, I'm a decent person, I'm, you know, doing all right. But then we get in the presence of God. And this is where John Calvin and his institutes is so helpful. And he says this, he says, we must infer that man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. And then one of my favorite paragraphs by John Calvin, 
Listen up, kids, because it's going to be a little hard to follow, but this is a great quote. It goes like this. He says, again, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us until by clear proofs we are convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. Moreover, we are thus convinced if we merely look to ourselves and not to the Lord who's the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. For because all of us are inclined to nature to hypocrisy, a kind of empty image of righteousness in place of righteousness itself abundantly satisfies us. As long as we do not look beyond the earth, being quite content with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue, we flatter ourselves most sweetly and fancy ourselves all but demigods. Suppose we but once begin to raise our thoughts to God and ponder his nature and how completely perfect are his righteousness, wisdom, and power, the straight edge to which we must be shaped. Then what masquerading earlier as righteousness was pleasing in us will soon grow filthy in its consummate wickedness. What wonderfully impressed us under the name of wisdom will stink in its very foolishness. What wore the face of power will prove itself the most miserable weakness. That is what, it, what in us seems perfection itself corresponds ill to the purity of God. What he's saying is that when we get in the presence of God and we look up, then we're, we're, we're out of our league. And we realize that what we thought was, we thought we were fancying ourselves, thinking we were righteous. Are you kidding? We fall on our faces. What did Isaiah say when he saw God? And he heard the angels crying out back and forth to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of God. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. When Ezekiel came into the presence of God, it's the same thing. He said, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God, and when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Habakkuk has a vision of God, and he says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound, and rottenness enters into my bones, and my legs tremble underneath me. You see, it's easy to forget who God is. God is the one who destroyed the whole earth with a flood, the days of Noah. He turned Lot's wife into a pillar of salt, like that, after he rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah for their sinfulness. God struck down Uzzah, who just thought he would help God out by steadying the ark so it wouldn't hit the dirt, and God just struck him down. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, thought they would offer up a little fire to the Lord, struck down instantly. And they're told, don't even, God, so don't even mourn about it. God struck down 185,000 Assyrians in one night by the angel of the Lord. God wrote with a hand on a wall to Belshazzar. That's a, that's a creepy passage, isn't it? I mean, all of a sudden his hand just appears. Mene, Mene, Tekelu, Parson on the wall. You've been weighed in the scales and found wanting. 
God struck down all the firstborn sons of Egypt in the tenth and final plague. We have good reason to stand in awe of God. Let us offer to God acceptance and worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And when John saw Jesus in Revelation, we talked about this last week, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And, and John just says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Isn't that what Jesus does here? Is Jesus brings a resolve to the problem. Because the real problem is Peter doesn't know who Jesus is. And when Peter knows who Jesus is, now he's really, now what he knows is much worse than when he didn't know. And now that he knows, he's terrified and he's fallen down before his presence. And Jesus reaches down to him and he tells him, do not fear. From now on, you'll be catching men alive. We see something beautiful here. Is that Jesus comes and gives him a commission. This restoration always leads to mobilization. When Jesus restores us, now it's like going and telling people about Jesus is kind of easy now. I mean, you've just been in the presence of Jesus. And I'm supposed to be fearing man? Like, I've just experienced some, something so incredible, it's not so hard to go and tell people now. Jesus blew up all the lanes. None of this, no more stay in your lane kind of, kind of thing. Peter's just humbled. Many of you have heard this story before, but sometimes it bears repeating, and those who've heard it, you get to hear it one more time. But my scariest self-quake moment ever was when I was in middle school and we thought there was a haunted house. And some of you had heard this before. But So the story goes like this. It's a true story. We had heard, a couple of my friends, you know, I don't know how these stories get started, but that, that these two people lived in this house, a man and a woman, and she had choked while eating her food and died in the house and that her spirit lived in the house and the house was haunted. So me and my two friends, being latchkey kids, we come home from the school bus, no parents around. This house is in the middle of the woods with all kinds of no trespassing signs, but we are gonna go and prove that this house, either it is haunted or it isn't, but we're gonna go in and we're gonna find out. So these were two bold guys, bolder than me, and I made sure I planted myself right in the middle of them. And the three of us went past the no trespassing signs and the fence to get to this house, and many of the windows were broken in this abandoned house. And we kept hearing noises upstairs. So we would go into the house and we'd hear something upstairs and we would bolt out of the house out of fear. Well, you, you're middle school. I mean, you run, you hear noises. Well, finally, we got enough courage that we were going to go up the stairs to the second floor. And we were still hearing some little noises up there. And so we began to climb. And I'm in the middle of these three guys and it's one of these second floors where as you're climbing up the stairs, you're just about to be able to see over the top. And that's right where my eyeballs were. And boom, the loudest noise you've ever heard in your life. And I turned around and all three of us jumped all the stairs. And we were at least eight or nine stairs up and jumped all the stairs, two steps. I am out of the house. And there's a guy out there with a sawed-off shotgun standing outside the house. And I got to tell you, I was relieved to see him. 
how could you ever be relieved to see a man with a sawed-off shotgun over his shoulder? Well, when you think a house is haunted and you hear an explosion and you've had a self-quake and you're certain you are going to die, to actually see a man with a shotgun is not that big a deal. (laughs) It was an absolute relief to see him. Now, it was a relief to see him, but when he said, I don't want you coming back here again. This is my property, and I could see you up on top of the hill going in and out of the place, and I came down here because didn't you see all the no trespassing signs? And don't come back here again. Do you think we went back there again? No, because there was a proper fear, even though there was a relief that he wasn't going to kill us. There was a fear that when he gave us his commission of don't come back here, we got out of there and we didn't come back. Well, Jesus tells us a similar kind of thing with sin. Go and leave this life of sin. And there's this fear that happens, but there's a relief of knowing that we're in his presence and he loves us and he restores us. And that is such good news for our souls that we want to be near him and he hasn't killed us. And we're going to be near him forever because of his blood and because of his grace to die in our place. And so now when he gives us this commission, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men and go and tell others, there's less of a fear because we've experienced a greater fear, the greatest ever, and we've experienced him and we want others to know him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are beautiful, you are glorious, and sometimes you are scary. And we thank you that you have brought relief to these fears. Thank you for loving Peter and showing him who you are and showing us today. And Lord, you've given us a job to do, to go and tell others about you. We ask that, Lord, you'd forgive us of our fear And pray that we might be bold and courageous like Peter. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.